Hear the word of God from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Now regarding the question you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relationships, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relationships unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single, just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. For the, believe, for the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband bring holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy, but now they are holy. But if the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, let them go. In such cases, the believing husband or wife is no longer bound to the other. For God has called you to live in peace. Don't you wives realize that your husbands might be saved because of you? And don't you husbands realize that your wives might be saved because of you? Each of you should continue to live in whatever situation the Lord has placed you and remain as you were when God first called you. This is my rule for all the churches. For instance, a man who was circumcised before he became a believer should not try to reverse it. And the man who was uncircumcised when he became a believer should not be circumcised now. For it makes no difference whether or not a man has been circumcised. The important thing is to keep God's commandments. Yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it and remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. God paid a high price for you, so don't be enslaved by the world. Each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. Now regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married, I do not have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted, and I will share it with you. Because the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. If you have a wife, do not seek to end the marriage. If you do not have a wife, do not seek to get married. But if you do get married, it is not a sin. And if a young woman gets married, it is not a sin. However, those who get married at this time will have troubles. 
and I'm trying to spare you those problems. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriages. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be ab absorbed by their weeping of their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them, for this world, as we know it, will soon pass away. I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with a few distractions with as few distractions as possible. But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiancee improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes. It is not a sin. But if he has decided firmly not to marry and there is no urgency and he can control his passion, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiancee does well and the person who does not marry, even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. But in my opinion, it would be better for her to stay single. And I think I am giving you the counsel from God's spirit when I say this. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good morning. If this is your first time here, great text to come into. I mean, just easy and wonderful. It makes everybody feel really good about themselves. All right. Well, I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Um, so good to see all of you. I love being able to worship with you to sing with you, to gather together, to hear the word opened up together with you. There's something so powerful, something so beautiful about this idea of communal gathering of the believers in one place as one body. You know, my, um, I, uh, my family used to have this kind of like family reunion kind of thing that we would do every once in a while back in Panama City Beach and we'd get all the aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. We haven't done this in forever since my grandfather passed away, but we would get together and it was just so much fun. Not, not only was it fun, but it was just so cool because it was a bunch of people who had to love each other, you know, because we're all family, so you had to like, act like you loved each other and liked each other and we had to get along. And there's something so powerful about gathering together when people who know each other, especially like when I see my parents interacting with their brothers and sisters. That's the silliest thing, because when you think of your parents, you think of your parents. You know, they're adults. They're old and responsible. And you don't ever think of them as like making them making fun of each other. I love it when my aunts make fun of my dad. That's just hilarious to me, because my dad's like, 
super serious and kind of stoic, never shows emotion kind of guy. And then my sisters, my aunts who are older than him, just kind of like, oh, do you remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? And my dad's like, stop it. <laughs> I love that. And that's one of the feels that I think is, as we gather together in worship, this is not just a time to come together and let's choose a place to hear some decent music and hopefully hear a decent speaker. This is a time for people who've chosen to walk through life together and know each other's faults, gather together as family, and say together as, the, as, as our combined body together, we're gonna to do this thing called life because we're called to do it together. We know each other's faults, we can make fun of each other. We can also acknowledge that we're all sinners. We can be diverse, oh I love that, right? I love looking around our church building right here and seeing people from every walk of life and from different nations, from different cultures and knowing that we can gather together and we can all be called family. This is something we choose to do and God's blessed us with, is coming together as a family in the local church body to do life together for the purposes of advancing his kingdom. So I love it, I hope you do too. Hope this is not something that's just optional, it's something you just add on. This is something that we've chosen to do together as a family at Waypoint Church. So we're diving into 1 Corinthians, and like I said, if this was your first time here, if we were doing topical, this is not typically a, a sermon. The whole chapter seven wouldn't be what I would do, but this is where we're at, this is how we do things. For those of you who are new, we go through books of the Bible here in our preaching. Um, typically we go from a New Testament book to an Old Testament book to a New Testament book to an Old Testament book. So we're in 1 Corinthians right now. We're about halfway through. So chapter seven is close to being halfway through. And I know it's, been, it's, it's one of those things where we're covering so much, it's a whole chapter. And there's so much to get out of that chapter. And we could spend, I know there's other preachers who could spend weeks. There's commentaries that are full, full that you can talk about for each chapter um, of this book, but we don't have time for that. So we're gonna kind of narrow into a few common thoughts on this. If you remember that Paul has been dealing with the tangled, confused thinking of the Corinthians, particularly in the area of sex and sexuality. Chapters five and six, which um, I was gracious enough to give Pastor Danny to preach on. That was a gift. <laughs> Dealt with the extreme problems of this at Corinth, where those who kind of joined themselves to the church, professed faith in Jesus, had a hard time leaving behind their promiscuous ways of the Corinthian culture. There was a case of incest in the church. There was prostitution. There was immorality happening. And Danny got to preach on all of that, so hopefully you heard it. If you didn't, you can go back and listen to it later. In chapter seven, we start with actually an opposite extreme. There are those who seem to think that celibacy is actually the only way to really live for God's glory if you're a Christian. So they tended to devalue marriage and even to positively assert the need for divorce. And Paul to deal with both groups in the beginning of chapter seven. And in the middle of chapter seven, Paul speaks on being called and content. And then he goes back to being single, singleness and marriage at the end of the chapter. So he does this kind of break to show us that the key to being single or married or anything in life is to learn a holy contentment in your call. And I love this. Chapter 7 starts off with marriage, singleness, and celibacy, and marriage and has this little break that says, hey, learn how to be content and call. Then it goes back to see how, this is how you do singleness and marriage. And the whole point, I think all of this is to show you the hammer to the point for every one of us, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have kids, whether you're working a job, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever defines your move in life or your position or your state in life, whether you're a student or you're a worker, whatever it may be, the secret to this life, the secret to contentment is to be wholly contentment in your call. Gina and I had some international students over for dinner last night and we had great conversations, great time. Four students from Duke. 
And we talk about everything and anything. Seriously, we went from like educational systems in each country to how I would govern the dictatorship of Laurentia. Great hypothetical conversations. Good times. One of the students asked me how I felt about Facebook. I was like, what? He literally goes, how do you feel about Facebook? I was like, what do you, I don't know. How do you feel about your other apps on your phone? I don't know, I'm confused, I don't know. Never thought about how I felt about Facebook or any other apps. He asked me because he's thinking about trying to work there, but he felt there was a sentiment in America that they didn't like Facebook. So I was like, interesting. But if that was the case, he said, then why does everybody use it? He's like, most people I talk to, they hate Facebook, but they all use it, I'm confused. So I was like, okay, let me think about Facebook for a second. I love that I can see what's happening with my friends all over the place, love that. I love that I can see what's happening with my friends I would probably never know anything about or never keep in touch with. I actually love you guys know my story. I love that it was a tool that led me to discover that Gina and I were in the same town at the same time, at the same place. Oh, wait, the same town at the same time. Whew, that was, that was difficult there. That allowed us to get reconnected. Gina and I got reconnected through Facebook because I moved to Raleigh and the first thing I did was get a Facebook for the first time. I was a really late adopter. And I moved and, you know, when you get Facebook for the first time, you look up girls that you used to kind of talk to. So I was like, what's Gina doing? And it said, start a residency at Chapel Hill. I'm like, no way! So that's how we got reconnected. But I also hate that it knows so much about me and it knows what I was just looking at and what thinking about purchasing. I hate that it often leads me to comparison, jealousy, and a desire for more. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, right? You see those new people moving into that new house, that awesome vacation they just got back from, that great meal that they're eating, the, the great life that they seem to be living in, on Facebook. It leads to discontent, a desire for more, doesn't it? I mean, I know at least it does for me. And honestly, it isn't just for material or shallow things that it does. Uh, Pastor David Strain, when I was doing my research for his sermon, shared this confession that he found on Facebook. And this is an author that he wrote, and this, he wrote this on Facebook itself. So this is what he wrote. It'll be on the screen. I'll just read it for you guys. Sometimes I get jealous of your calling. And sometimes I confuse your calling with my calling. As I scroll through my newsfeed, I see you doing big, exciting things for God. Maybe you're doing missions, maybe you're writing a book, maybe you're leading an amazing Bible study at your church. Maybe your church has some crazy cool new program. Meanwhile, I'm at home doing small, seemingly unimportant things. Taking kids to school, going to work, going to church on Sunday. Nothing big. Nothing that you're gonna get a lot of likes and retweets. It's kind of depressing. I get jealous. I want your calling. I wanna do those fun, amazing, big, fast things. I want big, now, cool things for God. Quiet is boring, mundane seems lame. I feel pathetic and purposeless. Social media stretches me beyond my calling. It makes me want people and places and things that God has called you to and not me. So you see the problem. In this author's life, social media, this author's life was a general, generating discontent. But I love this, this author then quotes John Calvin. And usually a good thing when you quote John Calvin. Usually, not always. Seriously, you should <laughs> just throw that out to, just in case you're confused. Seriously, you should listen to this, and this is awesome. This is what John Calvin says. Each individual has his own living assigned to him by the Lord as a sort of sentry post so that he may not heedlessly wander throughout life. And so this author concludes, your calling isn't my calling. And if I try to take what you have, I will wander heedlessly throughout life. I'll leave the place of good, fruitful, productive work God has staked out for me and wander into wastelands. 
Is this true for other people? Is this true for you? Because I'll be honest, it is true for me. You know, I see some of the stuff that people are doing on Facebook, and whether it's not even just the material things, not even the seeming things, that you, but even the things that they're doing for God, I'm thinking, I want to do that for God. I want to write that book. I want to speak in front of thousands. I want all these people to know him. And why, what, uh, It's kind of lame, right? I think this idea of calling summarizes really well what Paul's message in 1 Corinthians 7 is. For Paul, the answer to this discontentment that a culture of more generates is bound up with understanding God's call in our lives. That's how he handles those who struggle with marriage or with singleness. It's calling. Actually, if you look at this passage, you'll see there are two different callings. In most cases in the Bible, call or calling refers to God's special saving call in our lives through the gospel. He summoned us to faith in Jesus Christ by the gospel and the Holy Spirit worked in our hearts, enabling us to answer that call and run to Jesus. And he made us new so that we can receive entirely new identity. We are new creatures, new creatures in Christ because of the call of God by his word and spirit. That's the majority sense that Paul uses the word call in our text and throughout most of his texts. But if you look at verse 17, Paul uses the word call in a different way. Here it refers, in verse 17, not to God's saving, renewing, transforming call of the gospel. Here it refers rather to a unique kind of call upon your life. Look at that text. It says, only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. We've been called by God to an assignment in life, a lot in life. Not always, not for the whole time, but certain times in life, we're called to a lot in life, to assignment in life. Some of us are called our husbands or wives, fathers and mothers, children and siblings, single or married, doctors and teachers and lawyers and homemakers, carpenters and shopkeepers and so on. God's given us uh, a calling in life, a lot in life, a vocation in life, a way to identify what it is that we're called to do. And there are two senses in which we are subject to God's call. The first is the saving call of the gospel that remakes us, that renews us, recreates us at the basic level. And the second call is the call of God in his daily providence given to each of us various circumstances of our daily lives. And our dissatisfaction, hear this, and our dissatisfaction, our discontentment with our lives very often results when we confuse the two. When we root our identity in the horizontal call, on the daily relationship call, on our lot in life call, and our earthly relationships and responsibilities that God has given us. When we look there for our identity, we place a burden on our jobs and our marriages and our daily duties that they were never meant to bear. Do you hear that? When you look for your identity and your worth in your daily vocation, you will never, ever be satisfied. Let me say that again. When you look for your worth and your identity in your job performance, you will never, ever be truly satisfied. But when you begin to understand, if you're a Christian, that your identity is now rooted in the fact that the saving, transforming, redeeming grace in the gospel that, that, that has redeemed you, has called you into a relationship and called you new, then we'll begin to see that success or failure at work, frustrations and inadequacies as a parent, doing well in school, being the brightest kid in class, having the greatest children, being married or single, you'll begin to see that those things simply can't touch who you are. 
Your identity is not derived from your performance in your earthly vocation. Rather, you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died to all that other stuff. Your identity now, who you are, is hidden with Christ in God. Your security is elsewhere. Your identity is elsewhere. In him, in this vertical call, this vertical relationship with God through the gospel by which he's made you new. Guys, your true, your new, your real identity is rooted there, and then you'll begin to find some freedom from the daily demands of this more culture. For always looking for the next big thing. Convinced by our culture that we cannot be complete without academic success or employment advancement or wealth. You'll be set free. You'll begin to find contentment. Do you hear that? That's a powerful word, to be content. Contentment. Paul wants to set us free from the kind of dissatisfaction that apparently was troubling the Corinthians and is almost certainly troubling us. He wants us to be content to bloom where we are planted. And that is the message, if you look at verse 17, that Paul has for us, isn't it? Lead the life the Lord has assigned to you. Bloom where you are planted. And he repeats his principle multiple times in this passage. Verse 20, each one should remain in the condition in which he has called. So when you were called, when you were converted, when everything changed for you, does that mean you abandoned your lot in life, or does it mean you desert the sentry post, as Calvin put it? No, it means bloom where you are planted. He says it again in the very end of passage, verse 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain with God. You see the point. And I love this. The Corinthians were so overcome by this revolutionary transformation that had taken place in their lives when God called them to Jesus. When God took them out of darkness into light, they felt this radical transformation. They had to do something radical. So they were walking out of their marriages. They were walking out of their jobs. They were walking out of their daily lives. And it's like, oh, these things don't satisfy me anymore. Well, Paul is telling them, no. That radical transformation doesn't mean you, you have to leave what you're in. It means you're so transformed that everything around you now becomes transformed. Do you hear that? Can I say that again? It doesn't mean when you become saved, when you come to know this radical darkness into light, it doesn't mean then that, oh, everything else is bad. Everything around you, you need to get rid of everything. No, what it means is that now you see everything clearly. You now see everything for what it is. It means that you're so transformed that everything else becomes transformed around you. That God has placed you where he's placed you for a reason. So in other words, that maybe that job that you've been in, and you become saved, you become, you come no darkness into light, and you're not walking with Jesus, and you're like, oh man, I'm radically transformed. Well, that's great, but you're like, oh, but this job is not transformed, and I'm going back to my regular life. Seems kind of mundane. Seems kind of boring. What's, what happened? I feel this radical change in me. I gotta get it out. And say, no, no, that radical change in you is meant to change, your, change the people around you, not necessarily change the circumstance you're in. Because it's powerful enough to do that. Do you hear me? A question you may have asked yourself more than once is there surely there's something bigger, better, and grander for me than this? And Paul says, bloom where you're planted. I want you, this is beautiful, I want you to discover the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Understanding that the contentment doesn't derive from your vocation, but from your redemption. Not from your life's work, but from your life's Lord. That was from a commentator I just read. I'll say that again. Bloom, what Paul is trying to say, bloom where you are planted. I want you to discover the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Understanding that contentment doesn't derive from your vocation, vocation, but from your redemption. Not from your life's work, but from your life's Lord. Contentment is found there. 
That's Paul's message in his verses. Guys, can I tell you something? It's easy to say, hey, let's show the glory of God. Let's show his beauty and his majesty by saying, oh, look, God, he, he rescued me. He took me out of my really bad situation and put me in a good situation. You're like, yay, look how happy I am now. But then you can also look at that and say, it's because you're in a bad situation, now you're in a good one. Anybody would be happy. You know, if I was, I don't know why my illustrations in my mind have to do, so, never mind, I'm not gonna share this one. I came up with a bad illustration, I'm not gonna share it. <laughs> I, I work too much with little kids and no, never mind. It's this idea that I come from, if you're in amongst garbage all the time, and now you're amongst like, the beach all the time, and you're like, oh, this is a great situation, I'm so happy now. See, it's easy to show joy in that, but when you show joy when you're still in the same bad situation, but something radically transformed inside of you, and you now show joy and contentment, that means something more powerful happened to you. Do you hear that? Here we are all so often asking God, we don't ask God for contentment, we ask him to change our circumstances most of the time, don't we? If you're not content being single, what do you you pray for? Marriage. If you're married, you're not content being married, you pray for singleness, no, don't do that. (laughs) But that's that's what we do. If we're not content in our jobs, if we're not content in our situation, we're not content in our house, we're not content with our, our, our income levels, we say, God, 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 change this, God, God, change that, I need more, I need more, I need this changed. But instead, what we say, God, is we need to know and show the world, what shows the world more passionately the glory and the beauty of God is when we learn contentment even in the bad situations. Even when we're sick, we're content. Even when we hurt, we're content. Even when we lose the ones we love, we're content. Even if the circumstances never change, even if I never get married, even if I, whatever it may be, we learn holy contentment. To drive this point home, Paul uses two weird illustrations, and I'll go into them. The first one he uses is circumcision. And this is what he talks about. He says, there are two situations that were happening in the Corinthians um, to show them this illustration. In verse 18 and 19, it has to do with the issue of circumcision. Circumcision was the great badge of belonging to Jewish people. It was their kind of right of entrance into the covenant community. But under the influence of the Greek culture, um, the, this kind of, this old, it became an Old Testament kind of regulation that people weren't doing. So we had two different kind of groups, that were, uh, kind of reactions that were happening in Corinthians. One group was saying, um, there was those who thought, if you're going to follow Jesus, you need to become circumcised and become Jewish. So verse 17 says, was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek your circumcision. In other words, be content as you are because the gospel is not about superficial externals. Rather, verse 19, neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. That's what matters. In Galatians 6.15, Paul says something very similar. He says, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You see, what Paul's trying to say to us is that now that God's broken it in upon you in a supernatural work of his grace and called upon your life, you have a new identity. And what really matters is you just living out contentment for him. You're living out your obedience to him. Living out to honor him of this vertical relationship. Not this preoccupation of what do you do with your body and do we need to um, be circumcised to be a part of the covenant community. If you've been called by God into a new life through the gospel, it really counts as living out the new life and the new identity that God has given you. It's like this, if my son, we bought my son, um, my wife bought one of those backpacks that has his like initials, you know, what are those called? Monograms, thank you. I think that's a really southern thing, is that right? Monograms, yeah, it has like this J, Y, Y thing, and yeah, I don't know. And it's like one of those things like, okay, that's his badge of belonging to my family. 
he carries his backpack around. I'm like, I'm a you. Which, with a last name like you, it's hard to you know, be like, I'm a you. Really, like, no. It's not one of those powerful last names. But I'm still going to go with it, okay? And he walks around, I like, I'm a you. Which just sounds weird anyway. But that's his badge of belonging to the family. He got to, you know. But you know what much, I would much rather him do? Is to live out our values as a family. Live out our mission. Live out who we stand for and what we stand for. Guys, what, what these people were trying to do is they're saying, okay, we feel this radical change come upon us. We know we've been transformed by the grace of God. For some strange reason, God has changed my heart, brought me out of darkness into light. So what do I do? I gotta do something. Let me go get circumcised to join the community. And what Paul is saying is, no, you don't need to do that. Live like it. Live into your new identity. Live content. I would much rather my son just live knowing that he's loved by his father and mother. I'd much rather my son just go through each day, rather than wearing the backpack and say he's a you, I'd rather him just say, I know and I live each day in the confidence that my mom and my dad love me radically. Do you hear that? Paul is saying circumcision is not what it's about. Learn to be content. It's not these externals that we place upon ourselves. It's learn to be content in the new identity. Do you get that? This is who you are. It's incredible. It's better than any other circumstance can happen. And there's a second case study that Paul is applying this to. If you look at 21 through 23, you'll see it. He addresses, tackles the issue of slavery. Actually, he doesn't really tackle the issues. He just uses it as an illustration. Apparently, some at Corinth thought that radical freedom that Jesus brings from the guilt and bondage ought to work itself in, in immediate liberation in all things earthly. And to understand how Paul deals with that, we need to remember that slavery in Paul's day is not about race. Hear that again. Slavery in Paul's day is not the slavery that we've kind of known in Western America here. It's not about race. We often get sidetracked and confused when we read about slavery in the Bible because we tend to go back to the institution of slavery that was a problem here in America the product of race-based prejudice where an entire people were stolen from their homeland and forced into demeaning servitude and viewed as property. That's not what slavery with Paul is talking about here. As a matter of fact, in other often translations, they call it bond servant instead. Certainly, some slaves at the time had difficult lives and circumstances, but others were skilled professionals, educators, businesswomen, and men. They were salaried and could eventually buy themselves into freedom or could be set free by others. You could be made a slave as a punishment for a criminal act, although many people sold themselves into slavery in order to deal with an particular financial situation or an unpayable debt. So it's not at all the type of slavery that is known that we often think about in America. So when Paul deals with slavery here, he only deals with it in a, briefly in a few verses. He's not immensely, and he's immensely cautious and immensely realistic about it. He has nothing positive at all to say about slavery. And in verse 21, notice he even encourages slaves to take freedom at every opportunity. He's not endorsing slavery, but he doesn't want anyone to think that the radical spiritual liberation that the gospel has brought into their lives must also mean, therefore, that every slave should rise up and revolt in this circumstance against their masters. That would have spelled disaster for the early church. It would have been a misunderstanding of the implications of the gospel. The call of God in Christ does not result necessarily in social revolution, but in personal transformation. And in verse 22, when the gospel gives you a new identity, brings you spiritual freedom, your outward slavery becomes less ultimate. He who has called, he who has called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. And likewise, for those in the Corinthian church who are masters are free, their social status was also less ultimate, less important, less significant. 
Verse 22, likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You see, what matters most, Paul is saying, isn't your social standing, your bondservant, your slavery, or your freedom, but being rightly related to God in Christ. That's what matters most, finding your identity there. And I love, I love this idea here. He's saying, hey, those of you guys, you guys are servants, you guys are slaves right now, hey, you're totally free in Christ. And those of you guys who are masters, those of you guys who have slaves or are servants, you guys are totally bound up as a slave to Christ. Isn't that weird? Is anybody else kind of like, I love that sounds poetic, but what does that really mean? Right? Like, that's the way I think of it. I'm like, oh, that sounds so good. I like that. But huh? I mean, basically what he's saying, guys, you guys need to understand this, is that he's saying that all the social constructs that we've kind of placed upon ourselves, that gives us identity, that gives us our worth, our contentment, whether we're slaves, oh, we're discontent, whether we're masters, we're content. No, they say, let's shatter all of that and quit finding your contentment in those things. Because, hey, you're a master, you think you're great, you're a slave. Oh, hey, you're a slave, you're free. Do you hear that? What matters most, Paul says, is that you were bought at a price, that Christ gave himself to make you his, that those of you who that are living in bondage, there's spiritual freedom in you, that Jesus purchased you, and those of you who think who are free to live however you please, when you come to Christ with a slavery to his mastery, that's a definition of true freedom. You were bought at a price, you are his now. His rule defines and directs your life from now on. You are his, you belong to him. So when you find yourself wishing you had someone else's calling, and we've all done that, wishing you were married when you're single, wishing that you had that other job, wishing that you were free when you feel so enslaved, when you can't stand being single, when, you, when your restless sense of not knowing who you really are undermines your ability to settle down, when you find it hard to bloom where you're planted, it might be because you're confusing the two callings upon your life. You've been looking for true significance in the call of God to an earthly vocation, the earthly circumstance, an earthly time, an earthly state. When you should have been looking at the significance that you have in the call of God and the gospel that gives you new identity in union with Jesus Christ. Paul says, this is what Paul's saying, this is a prayer from St. Augustine that says this, that has made us for thyself and our hearts are restless, Lord, till they find their rest in thee. Restless hearts, you will always be restless until you find your rest in Jesus Christ. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Contentment at last to bloom where you are planted because who we really are is not a function of what we do, but who God has, God has made us in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you, my people, that regardless of whatever circumstance and place that you are, the only way to find true contentment in all of it is knowing whose you are. Can I tell you, my people, that circumstances can always change. Well, one moment you could be at the top of the mountain, and the next moment you could be at the very bottom. There are testimonies in here, isn't there, but those who've been to both, right? How many of you guys can say that testimony, that you've been to the top and you've been to the bottom? You've been broken, you've been hurt, you've been crushed, you've been the one crushing. The thing that doesn't change, the thing that's constant, the thing that can only provide you constant contentment in this crazy world is the fact that you are in relationship with the one true God that was a gift given to you through the work of Jesus Christ. That the calling that you have, guys, is one of son and daughter, known and loved. 
And whatever circumstance you're in, whatever job or state or whatever position in life you're in, whether you're called to be a mother or a father or a single person or a student or a worker or a teacher or a social worker or a cook or a business owner, whatever state that you're in, whatever position you have in life, you've been given that for a reason by God for his glory and you show contentment in it and the world will know that you've been radically transformed on the inside and not just because of your circumstances. So my people, may we live like transformed people. May we live without having to just put on the outward appearances of being a Christian, but may we live in the reality of the loving Father. And people can say, oh, that, not because he has a badge on, not because he's wearing the backpack with the monogram on, but because that, that, that person knows that he's loved by God. He's content, she's content. That they'll know that God is real and they too may find contentment. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the secret to holy contentment is found in this vertical relationship with you. That you did all the work for it. There's nothing that we had to do, that you did all the work, that Jesus did all the work upon the cross. You did all the work of salvation, this huge story of redemption. God, that you've done all the work to lead us to right relationship with you vertically. And that right relationship, knowing who we are in you, leads us to holy contentment that can never be taken away. We did nothing to earn it, like nothing we can do could ever lose it. So thank you that our holy contentment is found in the fact that we are known and we are loved and we have purpose. That our holy contentment is found in the fact that we are beloved sons and daughters, that we are co-heirs with Christ. That is who we are. So may we live out our contentment. In Jesus' name, amen.